thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello, this week we're answering your science questions, including why am I getting hairier as I get older? How long are we supposed to live for? And could solar panels actually work in the moonlight? Plus, we've also got the lowdown on the recent cyber attacks sweeping the world. What's been happening? And also, how can you protect yourself? I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, today we're joined in the studio by a panel of experts who are ready and raring to answer your science questions. So let's meet them. First up, Richard Hollingham. He's the presenter of the Space Boffins podcast. Hello, Richard. Hello. Now, the last time I saw you, I think, well, I think since the last time I saw you, you've been over to the US. I have. That hence the suntan. Oh, hence I thought you'd just been in the UV Beautiful complexion. Again. Now, I'm making two documentaries for the BBC on the Voyager missions and the Cassini mission for transmission sometime in the summer. Because you, you tweeted a picture of yourself, this tiny little speck on this enormous satellite dish. Ah, uh, that was Australia. Uh, what no, I was, in Austra- I was in Australia. You've been there as well? Yeah, yeah. I've been Gosh, Australia you have been all well. over the place. So what were you doing on the dish? So that was the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia, which is just this phenomenal radio telescope. Iconic. It, it gave us the pictures from the first moon landing in 1969. And I happened to go on the day where they were maintaining it. So I got to stand in this huge bowl in Australia in the sunshine. And oh, that's just made my year, made my decade, that. So space... Questions for Richard Hollingham, who has got an unfeasibly good suntan. Also sitting next to Richard is Kate Feller. She's a biologist at Cambridge University, and, and you won this year's Cambridge uh, FameLab regional final. Yes, Kate, I did. Because you appeared on the programme. We were so impressed we invited you to come back. You told <laughs> us all about shrimps. Any more shrimpy or marine stories to impart? Uh, well, so I'm really excited because I just built my first robot. It's very simple, but its uh, whole goal is to poke mantis shrimp in the tummy so that they strike at me. Um, so it's it's just a poking robot. It's just a, a thing called a linear actuator that just literally pokes them in the tummy and then they get really angry and they strike at me and then I could study their strike. I'm not surprising. And what's <laughs> this I hear about you having shrimps in your suitcase? Oh, uh, so I, uh, I just mentioned that I'm, I'm headed to Spain tomorrow to pick up some, um, some, new, some new animals and uh, I just I have to bring them back. So I put them in my checked luggage. So, so what do you tell the customs person? I have a penchant for seafood or something. Uh, well, I do have some, I have some legal paperwork that I, I <laughs> present when asked. <laughs> Kate, thank you very much. So anything sort of marine science and biology, that should go to Kate. So get your thinking caps on. Uh, next to Kate is Andrew Holding. He researches cancer and he's a researcher at Downing College in Cambridge. Hello, Andy. Good to have you back because you've been on the programme before. Well, just remind people what you do. So, um, I mean, I started out as a chemist and I sort of gravitated over time towards 
upcoming uh, cancer biology researcher. And what I do is I look at the things that drive breast cancer. So I'm trying to take apart all the pieces of the machine that drive it and try and find out which ones maybe we can target for a future therapy. When you say things that drive it, you mean in a cell, why a cell becomes cancerous? So in 70% of cases of breast cancer, it is driven by the estrogen receptor. And that goes onto the genes, on the chromatin, on the DNA, and that then starts those genes to be active. And when it does that, it brings a load of other proteins with it. And what I'm trying to do is work out what are the other proteins and what do they do. Because there might be potentially a, a, a druggable target in yeah. there, something we can do. Thank you, Andy. And uh, Jess Wade is also with us. She's a physicist and uh, she's from Imperial College in London. And you're a Lego person as well. You like Lego. Yeah, I do like Lego. I um, got asked to go and talk at Lego Education this week in Denmark and I said I'd only go to Denmark. It's not Australia and it's not America. I said I'd only go if I got to go around kind Lego of land. the big Lego house. <laughs> yeah. So we got to go and see the house where Lego lives, where the kind of Lego ideas lab is and where they have all this fun kind of creating the new Lego for the future and through a really sweet little Lego museum and kind of see the history of Lego too, which was super fun. So yes, I'm a physicist, but I have an awful lot of fun doing it. And what are they creating for the Lego of tomorrow? Did you get any sneaky So previews? they're trying to change it from Lego being something where we build structures. So Lego Lego tells us what to build. You see a picture of a car, you see a picture of a boat and you do it. And they're trying to change it to something where you build with Lego. So Lego becomes more functional. So you can make your robot to poke your shrimps with out of your Lego rather than having to buy new pieces of plastic. There you go, Kate. Yeah. Sorted. <laughs> it with Lego. They would love it. <laughs> <laughs> now, Richard, this question from Paul, I think it's probably best coming your way. I know there have been many missions to the moon and it's incredible to think that humans have walked on its surface. But apart from because we can, what's the point? What are we actually going to learn? Okay, so there are, I would say, three reasons. Reason one is resources. So you could look for helium-3. We could use that on Earth to uh, power fusion reactors. You could maybe look for rare Earth elements on the moon. But actually, bringing stuff back from the moon is going to be a huge amount of energy, probably not worthwhile. You could use the moon's resources, so water, the rock there, to build bases or even to power uh, future spacecraft, but that's slightly self-serving. So I would say the main point of going to the moon is because it's the next thing. It's the over the hill, it's across the river, it's, it's over the sea. It's what we do as humans, it's aspirational. And then you could look for all the other the other reasons that all the spin-offs we've we've got from space, like the uh, the computers, electronics, uh, microwaves, um, the Wi-Fi, imaging technology, Wi-Fi, all these sort Velcro, of, all these sorts of things. Virus. Well, actually, well, yeah, is that true? No, the the Velcro is sort smoke of detectors. not so true. Smoke detectors, really? Yep, and carbon mm. monoxide detectors. Oh, were they invented solely for the purpose of space? Yes. Can I throw one more thing in? It's inspiration. The people inspired by space, the kids inspired by space. You look at the two of the biggest entrepreneurs doing space right now, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, both inspired by the moon landings. They are the reasons to go to the moon. Thank you very much, Richard. Now, Jess, we have to come back down to Earth with a bump for you. Hello, naked scientists. My name's Karen, calling from Hollywood, California, and I got a pretty stinky question for you. How... Would you best remove flatulence from an automobile by opening a combination of windows and sunroof? Hey, thanks for your help. Take care. I thought, Bet Jess, never in your whole career did you think that 
you would be coming to reach this moment to apply the rules of physics and fluid dynamics to ventilate a car especially to be asked from california i think that's brilliant <laughs> so um there's obviously a few different issues here about how you get a fart out of a car and one of them is about which windows you choose to open the other one is how what kind of temperature the fart is at as disgusting as that sounds because that affects how quickly it expands when it comes out into the atmosphere and then the other one is which kind of gases are in the air already so um when when the fart occurs it it comes out it expands it moves forward to the kind of front of the car because that's a region of lower pressure if you're moving along because the higher pressure region is at the back why is that because the air is accelerating forward so it's pushing backwards increasing the pressure at the back you're assuming the car is getting faster i'm assuming here that so the therefore car is the air is being forward. left behind a bit exactly. inside the car so the fart's going to make it make its way towards the front towards so the driver the front, is because... going to experience it more than the exactly backseat. well that's just made me realize the worst thing you can do when someone farts in the car is try and accelerate away from it yeah so you should put the brakes on is that what you're saying <laughs> it is yeah. the worst thing you can do and if you're in the passenger seat and you're the one who's done the fart it's going to be very obvious very quickly because it's going to go forward to the driver and if you try and open the windows which is what you'd probably try and do there's interesting things that happen with kind of fluid flow and you'd think if you were this little air particle in the car you'd want to rush out right as soon as you get outside you realize very quickly that the air there is not actually at the lower pressure that you assumed it was at and it's much lower pressure inside the car so the air there isn't moving with you it's 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 outside so you rush back into the car so the smell doesn't leave if you just open one of the windows which right. i think is super interesting window, then? so i think to get this fart out karen in california you have to slightly open the front window and open the back window so that you create a kind of flow through the car. This really interesting, you can get really interesting graphics of it, of kind of turbulent flow going I'm through these two open windows. Right now, actually. And then, <laughs> I'm not going to make any judgment here. You could also get smart materials to make your car seats out of that actually absorb odours. So smart materials are materials that have a function when you do something to them. So materials like ones that you can jump up and down on and then they produce electricity, kind of piezoelectric materials. But you can also get clever ones that can trap the smells. So smells are usually kind of carbon-based molecules and you can get ones that get trapped in the fabric so you don't smell those at all. So that is one option. But the other option is obviously also doing this with the windows. Okay, so a front window open a bit, a back window open a bit, yeah. and that should achieve the right pressure differential to vent the fart. Entirely right. Jess, fartologist, thank you yeah. very much. Thanks for that, Imperial. Yeah. That training. <laughs> now, Andrew, on that sort of appetite intestinal note, listener Liam is wondering, why do we lose our appetite? Probably like half our listenership have lost their appetite when we see or hear gross things. What do you think? So this is a fascinating one. So as we're discussing, if you get a foul smell or you get you see something that's particularly gross, it's really, really hard to then go and have a burger straight afterwards. It's just our bodies reject food. And there's quite a lot of sense to that. It's a pretty much a learned reaction that if something you've seen before has made you ill, you will eventually build up a response to it. It means you won't eat it again. And this is the same sort of idea as Pavlov's dogs, which hopefully many people have heard of, which is this guy who kept ringing a bell for his dogs and giving them food at the same time. And eventually, when he rang the bell, uh, they would still salivate as if the food was coming, uh, when it wasn't. But my favourite fact about these learnt responses is that there was another person around who's called Skinner, and he was working on pigeons. And the reason you haven't heard much about him is he was involved in the US's pigeon-guided missile effort. Now, do you know about this, Chris? No, no, I don't. Tell me. What they realised is you could train a pigeon to peck on an image of a target. And the idea was if you put the pigeon in the missile and it could see where it was going, it would peck where the target was and guide the missile 
to where it was heading. So there were sort of birdseed factories all over the place that were really worried as soon as this starts to happen because they think they could suddenly get an, an, an unexpected visit yeah. from a missile. But, but as you can tell by the fact, these missiles are so popular now that um, <laughs> this was never a successful program. But it, if you go through the history, you find that this was tried several times, that people thought this was a great idea. Well, actually, there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago. It's a gentleman I spoke to from California, and, and he's actually turned pigeons into pathologists because he was asking pigeons to look at uh, and review images of cancer and he had sort of you've heard of crowdsourcing where he was doing what he called flock sourcing so you have a big group of pigeons and you train them and reward them when they peck at a picture when it's got cancer in the picture of the cells that a pathologist would look at down a microscope and the pigeons very quickly became much better at this than a whole group of trained pathologists the reason is that they're just very, very visually good because they have extremely good eyesight, birds do, and when you're just looking for pattern recognition, what a cancer looks like, you know, why does it have to be a pathologist? You have a, have a pigeon to do that, and they quickly screen things out, and, and then you just focus your pathologist on stuff that matters. But back to Liam's point then, what gross things grossing us out and, and suppressing your appetite, you're saying it's just a learned response. It, you experience something horrible, it makes you throw up, so the next time that something horrible like that comes along, you avoid it. Yeah. I mean, there are some things that may be more or less ingrained. Do you like bitter tastes? Obviously, young children really don't like bitter things, so they don't eat bitter berries. Okay. How would you account for kind of almost innate revulsion for smelling poop? Uh, well, some people are fine with poop and some people aren't. Um, I'm th- not. You're not. You're not. <laughs> no, but, but, but I've had children. I know, yeah. I know I'm definitely and, not. And you can definitely train yourself against it by the fact that, you know, you can deal with your kids' nappies. The first time it's pretty shocking. After three years of it, you're fed up with it. After but three you... years of it, you're ready to go nappy negative. <laughs> There's a reason kids get potty trained. Yes, there certainly is. Now, Kate, question for you. Rachel has, has got in touch and she wants to know if there are any invisibility cloaks in the animal kingdom. In other words, could an animal render itself invisible? Uh, yeah, so to be invisible means that basically that your body contrast is diminished relative to the background. So it's like when any kind of soldier wears camouflage that makes them blend into the forest behind them. So that that is a type of invisibility cloak. Uh, but there's animals that are much better than military folk. Uh, in particular, a lot of the cephalopods, like octopus, squid, and cuttlefish in particular, have this really dynamic patterning on their skin that is electrically controlled. And so they can match their background almost instantaneously. It's, it's fantastic. And it's a myth that chameleons blend into their background. It's, it's not true. They do it more for communication, not for camouflage. Is that true? Uh, I, I'm not, I've never worked with a chameleon. Um, I do know that their skin changes color, but it's very, very slow. And if they are camouflaged, it's probably because they just have a, a pattern on their skin that makes them more camouflaged, regardless of what color they change. There's also animals that are completely transparent. Uh, they live in the open ocean, and they have no pigments in their tissue, and they also have special adaptations in their muscles so that light, when it enters their tissue, doesn't scatter like it would in milk and uh, or in like a cloudy piece of glass. Uh, and so they are just totally invisible, uh, unless they have eyes, because eyes can't be totally invisible, or otherwise they don't work. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, we'll be joined by cyber security expert Paul Harris to get to grips with the recent cyber attack that spanned 150 countries. We'll find out what's actually happened, where that malware came from and what we can do about it. And also, if you have any questions for a future Q&A show like this, you can send them in by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com. 
Now, a few weeks ago here on The Naked Scientist, we actually reported on the discovery that the, the caterpillar of the wax moth can eat plastic bags. And remarkably, this was found out completely by accident because one of the researchers on the paper that was published in Current Biology, and uh, she keeps bees as a hobby, found some of these larvae in her beehive where they're a pest. And she put them in a plastic bag thinking she would study them later, went back to the bag later to get the caterpillars so she could look at them, and they'd all gone because they'd eaten their way out of the bag. Uh, so we thought it'd be quite fun to ask uh, if you as a team have come across any particular scientific discoveries made entirely by accident. Jess, anything you've come yeah, across? Yeah, so I have a few actually. There's so many accidents in physics that make kind of magical things happen. One of which is post-it notes. Scientists who are trying to make glue were obsessed with making the world's strongest glue. And someone called Spencer Silver was trying to make this really, really strong glue and he was systematically failing, which is great, by the way, in science. And what he did was accidentally make a glue that was really, really rubbish. And he put it on some paper and then found the paper just came off everything he was putting it on. He was really frustrated. But actually, that's incredibly useful when it comes to something like a post-it note where you just want to put it on a page and then take it off and not damage the page. So he didn't quite realise the kind of empire he'd created at this time. And I think that's just really brilliant. You try and do one thing and you make something that's actually much more valuable. Richard, I'm working on the Voyager uh, documentary on the Voyager missions at the moment. And um, I mean, most space missions you get unexpected discoveries you point a telescope at something you find all sorts of of cool stuff voyager one in 1979 so it'd been in space two years by this point and it was about to head off beyond the solar system so it was it was in orbit around jupiter and it wasn't in orbit around it, it was just passing through jupiter past jupiter and it needed to find its direction out of the solar system so it's using the moon io uh, to look and just get the get its position and they sent the image back and they looked at this image. It was all blurry at the top. So they thought, well, what's going on with the camera? Maybe the camera's broken. And they, they took another image and they discovered that was a volcano. So they found the first active volcanoes other, other than on Earth on this moon of Jupiter. And now we know there are around about 400 active volcanoes on the moon Io. Okay. Uh, so there's actually a paper that came out that was based off of this guy's uh, accidental discovery. He's a dragonfly biologist, and he was at a pond waiting to waiting for female dragonflies who had just mated so that he could collect their eggs. And he observed this female uh, was being pursued by a male and then just dropped out of the sky and just crash landed in the grass. And he thought that she had crashed and died. And, the, and she was like on her back in very unnatural dead-like position and the male came over and was like oh you're dead that's too bad and flew away it, and how's then, it go again well, <laughs> well i'm really disappointed <laughs> um and, and so then the the researcher went over to to look at this this female dragonfly and she just like a lightning just took off and so he then was like whoa did did she just fake her own death so she didn't have to mate and and he did a proper study and found that yes are you saying this is the dragonfly equivalent of not tonight i've got a headache yeah except if if instead of actually articulating something you just played dead <laughs> like you just were in in the pub and some guy was picking on you and you just <laughs> collapsed to the floor and people called the ambulance does this happen to you much kate uh, <laughs> i know i'm married so i, I don't have that <laughs> right, uh, this question, Jess, is from Mike, and he's got an unusual idea for a possible renewable energy source. How much energy is in moonlight, and could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? So, solar-powered nightlights. 
I think Feasible? this is yeah, this is an interesting question, especially leading on from the moon related chat earlier. I think um so for a solar panel to work at all, you need a material called a semiconductor. And a semiconductor is kind of halfway between a metal which conducts all the time and an insulator, which is like a plastic that doesn't conduct. And in a semiconductor you have this gap between it not conducting and it conducting. And what you need to do is you need to have enough energy to get the little electrons in that not conducting part to the conducting part. And when you've put that energy in from the sunlight, then it can start working and generate power and if you had a a semiconductor that was the right thing for sunlight obviously if you got enough light intensity from the moon reflected back you could have this kind of moon solar panel but the moon's not very reflective it's about three percent of the sun's light so we're not getting a lot of it back like that so we'd have to have a really efficient concentrator to concentrate all that light coming back from the moon and actually you can find it i think a group in spain made this really beautiful kind of glass orb that you can generate power from the moon's light the other option is to put solar panels on the moon and then send the energy back as microwaves. Richard? Well, I was going to suggest maybe a mirror in space. I know the Soviet Union were very keen on this back in the the 1970s. I think they did some, or at least planned some experiments. You had the, the planes, you could light them at night from sunlight with mirrors in space. I think entirely that this kind of thing is um, dreamy blue skies research ideas that either you put solar panels on the moon or you put mirrors in space and shine the light back because obviously the moon has no atmosphere and all these other things that we lose so much of the light intensity coming to earth wouldn't happen up there. It's incredibly expensive and we should probably channel more money into researching and I'm pretty sure we're great at it now, researching renewables on Earth before we start playing around in the skies. There was some idea about having a giant um, microwave beam that would gather energy in space and then send that energy down as a huge microwave beam and collect it with a dish on Earth. Obviously there are losses at all these all the stages but was there not some concern that if an aeroplane or something inadvertently flew through the microwave beam it would be cooked out of existence well it does seem an extraordinary i think the big issue with with solar energy is storage it's the big issue with renewable energy generally and that's the, that's the thing isn't it Jess, that got, needs to be sorted. we've got pretty good at storage now lithium-ion batteries are a really good way to store it and we're getting really really good at that research and really good at it in this country there's loads of great research groups doing it so i don't think it's storage genuinely i think it's political the reasons that we haven't taken it up yet but i and also obviously the the cost of doing any kind of extraterrestrial renewable energy research is a bit out of our range at the moment kate oh i just had one other point about the moon being used for a, a solar panel uh just the fact that it has phases and it also like the the light doesn't decrease linearly as it goes from full to half phase to to new moon that it actually by half phase it's only one fifth of the already three percent that you have so yeah, it's yeah just... so once a month you've got no light at all <laughs> once yeah. a month we're winning and the rest of the time it's just like <laughs> not so good now richard sam has been in touch and he wants to ask about muscles in space now these are muscles as in your your muscles that your biceps not muscles that you get from the sea and like study like kate does now he says they can waste in space because of decreased gravity does that mean that astronauts return to Earth really weak? And so are they up there on the International Space Station weightlifting every day? Uh, yes. There we go. Space is really bad for you. Um, so because there's no gravity, you do get muscle loss. So astronauts have to exercise two hours a day, two hours a day, every day of the week. Um, and even then, they return to Earth with, with weakened muscles. More seriously, there's a loss in bone density as well, which is useful for studying astronauts in space because that might be applied to osteoporosis or other 
other diseases on Earth. Um, other things that astronauts experience, lack of sleep. That's partly because you've got daylight every uh, 90 minutes or so. Eyesight gets worse. They don't entirely know why that is yet. You've got the radiation risk, so increased risk of cancer. You get zapped by, um, by cosmic rays all the time. Uh, there's even weakened immune system. Again, they don't know the entire reason for that. Um, so, I mean, it's bad. Space is bad. Um, Scott Kelly spent a year in space and they reckon he's going to take another year to recover fully. Um, Peggy Whitson, currently up on the space station, she's now holds the record for 560 days in space. But these are all super fit people when they go up. But it does take a while to get back. My favourite quote on this is from um, Bones in Star Trek, from the um, first of the new Star Trek movies. Uh, Space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. It's good to see Star Trek quoted on the programme. Jess? Does anything good happen? So there was that story about Scott Kelly. Do you not get taller when you come back from space? Oh, yes, you do. Yeah, you do. But that in itself is a problem because you're fitted for your spacesuit. So they get in the, um, now they only have the Soyuz capsule. So fit in their spacesuit to go up and actually getting back, they're taller. It's they really, you in. They, they literally <laughs> squeeze them in to the seat. They have to make the seat slightly bigger. So when they come back, they will fit in the seat. They're recycling the suits all the time anyway, right? They don't make the suit just No, they, they do make the suit just okay. So you do have your own space suit. So you're fitted. They have these special suit okay, checks cool. and everything. So, yeah. And they're incredibly expensive too, those suits, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, the, weirdly, they're, they're still laced up. I mean, they're basically the same space suit, more or less, that Yuri Gagarin flew in. So they are extraordinary. They're very old technology. They're laced up and they're kind of wrapped in on themselves. Okay. How does skin react to being in space? Like, do astronauts have to moisturize all the time, or are they actually holding their moisture much better that, in space? Yeah, that's that's interesting. I would imagine it's an issue because it's not so much that they're in space; it's that they're in this rather nasty air-conditioned environment. Now, Andrew, uh, let me put this age-old, or I suppose I should say, old age question your way. Hi, naked scientists. I'm Stefan, calling from Sweden. So I'm getting older and, for example, my eyesight is deteriorating, which I find understandable. But why do other parts of the body speed up? Why are my ears growing hair like never before? Now, why has Stefan got hairy ears as he gets older, Andrew? Well, this is a problem many of us face, sadly. And that's as we get older, certain parts of our body start growing more hair and certain other parts start growing less hair. And this is for several reasons, but you may notice that it's generally men who suffer from this. I don't know about you, Chris, do you? Well, I have noticed that actually the hairs in my nose seem to grow longer as I've got older. I haven't noticed them being more numerous, but I've certainly noticed that they seem to get longer before they fall out. So the maybe good thing for you about that is that says that you've got lots of testosterone because that's what's causing these to grow. So the hairs in your nose basically go through three different phases. And the phase which makes them grow longer, that phase is caused by the amount of testosterone you have. So as you get older and as that testosterone has more of an effect because you've just had it for longer, that phase seems to gradually get bigger and bigger. And it's also why women are generally protected from this. So a person who, like Stefan, says they're getting hairier as they're getting older, it's because the testosterone that they're being exposed to is making hairs on the body grow relatively for longer before they fall out. So it's not that you're becoming hairier, it's that more hairs grow for longer, so you notice them more. Yeah, and your eyebrows also grow longer and you get to that fateful moment where the hairdresser says, do I need to trim your eyebrows? Hasn't happened to me yet. Thank I, you. I'm fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you.
You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. Now, before we go to any more questions, though, we've got a little quiz. Okay, so it's quiz time, everybody. So rather than people sending in the questions, I've got some questions for you. And we're going to have two teams. Rich and Kate are going to be team one. Andrew and Jess, you're going to be team two. Now, the rules are really simple. We've got three questions each. Uh, I'll ask you something. Give me the answer and you'll either get uh, one of these. Or you get one of these. If you get it wrong. Let's start with Richard and Kate. So question one, what's heavier, a proton or a neutron or same? What do you think, you two? Oh. Oh, my. Oh, it's been a Not very much, either of them. I know. This is just the trouble, isn't they're, it? They're similar in size. It's the electrons that are super tiny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's uh, well, I would go with proton. proton. Yeah. yeah. So okay. going for a proton is heavier. Yeah. I'm sad to say at 1.674 times 10 to the minus 27 kilograms, neutrons are slightly heavier than protons, which weigh a weighty 1.672 times 10 to the minus 27 kilos. But they're both considerably more massive than an electron. You're right on that score. An electron weighs about 2,000 times less than that. Mm. Right, over to the other team. Let's see if uh, you can beat them. Wouldn't be hard, would it? You just have to get one right. Okay. (laughs) Would the hydrogen-rich gas giant planet Jupiter, in theory, float or sink if you were to put it into water? So assuming you had a planet-sized ocean you could bob Jupiter into and drop it in, would it float or would it sink? What do you think? So by the centre, it's going to be getting pretty dense. But it's pretty big. So I think the outside, if you average across the whole thing, it's going to be lighter than water because water's really dense. Yeah, I I mean... I have literally no way in my mind of imagining this happening. <laughs> but I imagine if you can similarly displace enough water with your massive dense core, then it would float, right? You're going for Jupiter would float. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> nil, nil. A team spirit here. Okay. Well, according to NASA, Jupiter's density is 1.326 grams per centimetre cubed, and that means Jupiter is denser than water, which has a density of one, and so therefore Jupiter would sink, not float. Okay, back to Richard and Kate. Here we go. Strung end to end, all of the DNA molecules in your body's cells would stretch to Pluto and back about five times. What do you think? Whoa. That's a long way. That is a long way. <laughs> Pluto and back five times. All the DNA. All of the DNA. So all the DNA from all this of could be one of those. This is going to be one of those trick questions. It's going to be like six yeah. times, isn't oh, it? Or yeah. four times or something like that. If oh. it was in the context of how many times around the planet, I would feel more yeah. comfortable with that analogy. Well, I, I'm going to go for false. Uh, false, yeah. 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 You're going false? Yeah. Oh! <laughs> Actually, it's quite interesting, this one. So the DNA in each of your about 40 trillion or so cells, it's about two metres long. So if you stretch it all out end to end, it would form a strand that's roughly 80 trillion metres, and that's 80 billion kilometres in length. Now, the distance to Pluto is about seven and a half billion kilometres, so you should actually have enough DNA in there to get there and back about five times. Which is really quite extraordinary. So it's a level pegging on high school. <laughs> Your panel of right, okay, here we go. So it's Andy, Andy and Jess's go now. So which, in theory, is the more poisonous, a crane fly or daddy long legs or a puffer fish? Which has the worst venom, do you think, you two? Okay. See, see I've heard about the crane fly, and I've also heard that it can't penetrate your skin. Oh, but I only said which is, in theory, the yeah, most poisonous. So which I the reckon worst it's definitely not going to be a puffer fish. It's similar to your... But- I, I see. I think this is one of these big urban myths that actually they're not even that poisonous if they did bite you. Wait, what? A pufferfish? The the um, crane fly. 
Okay. A puffer fish is I mean, the one that like, I rarely think about cream flies. I, I haven't ever. <laughs> puffer fish is that? That's one they make fugu from, right? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So that does kill you. That does kill you entirely. <laughs> I remember that from the Simpsons. You can't get much so of... as long as okay, we're gonna push. So you. okay, let's, let's go. go. What, we you can't get more. Should we go completely deck? rogue? Are you and going puffer fish or are you going daddy long legs? Make your choice. Puffer fish, fine. Puffer fish. Ah, thank you. <laughs> they scored. Finally, they're off the bottom. <laughs> Crane flies aren't poisonous at all. That's a complete myth. Uh, according to Toxipedia, the, the lethal dose of pufferfish venom, which is a chemical called tetrodotoxin, is 334 micrograms per kilogram of body weight in a mammal like a mouse. So there really is absolutely no contest. Steer clear of tetrodotoxin. And if you go and eat pufferfish, which otherwise known as fugu in the restaurant, Make sure a good chef prepares it for you. Right, uh, you guys, back to Richard and Kate. Here we go. The average person walks a distance equivalent to about 10 laps of the earth in their lifetime. Ooh. Mm. Mm. This, this is like the Pluto one again, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I would have got the Except Saturn it's one on Earth. Right. <laughs> or the Jupiter one right. Oh, I mean, is this the, is, the, is this the average person on the planet or is this the average person from the UK? The average or the average American. <laughs> I mean, very different between the US and America. Yeah. Yeah. Average person, it says here. Can really be true? Let's go for it. We didn't before. Shall we just go? Yeah. Yeah, we'll just go for true. Let's do it. True. Yeah. No! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh if only the Simpsons could have helped us with that, because I knew about pufferfish from the Simpsons yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm. No, the average person walks about 7,500 steps a day. Uh, so in an 80-year lifetime, that's about 220 million steps. So average stride length being what it is, every 2,200 steps, that's about a mile. So the average person walks about 100,000 miles in their lifetime. Distance around the equator, 25,000 miles, 24,000 miles. So a person walks the equivalent of about four or five laps of the Earth in their lifetime. So there you go. So the, we do have a winner, but would you like to have your final question, just just to really trounce them, you two? Would you like that? Yeah, or are you to let them off? <laughs> Okay, well, relative to their body weight, which is the stronger, an Asian elephant or an Asian weaver ant? Oh, I bet it's the ant. It must be, mustn't it? I've never seen an elephant, like, pick up something ten times its size. Yeah, let's go for the ant. Okay, convincing win from Team team Andrew and Team Jess. In terms of body weight, the ant wins. In 2010, Cambridge zoologist Thomas Endline photographed an Asian weave ant holding a 500 milligram weight in its jaws, and that's about 100 times its body weight. In terms of tonnage, though, it's the elephant that's the hand-down or trunk-down winner. Um, according to the Food and Agriculture Association of the UN, elephants used in Sri Lanka's logging industry commonly pull around three or four tonnes at a time uh, in a day. Uh, Wikipedia tells us that Asian elephants also tend to weigh about as much as this anyway so the ant wins so we don't need the tiebreaker well done andrew and jess right richard here's one for you it's from hannah in a space mission which is actually more dangerous taking off from earth or landing back on earth safely actually if you look at the statistics on this during launch only one crew has died so that was the challenger disaster in 1986 was seven died with the soyuz which is the russian spacecraft in 1983 two crew were ejected on the escape system so uh, seven people have died on launch was still seven people too many if you look at landings um i think they're more dangerous so you look at the first soyuz capsule uh, the cosmonaut died because his parachute became tangled the columbia disaster in 2003 where seven crew died 
um, on the way back to Earth. And then uh, in 1971, uh, three crew died on uh, Soyuz 11. So we've had 11 astronauts die uh, re-entering the atmosphere. And if you think about that, actually it makes a lot of sense because escape systems are normally built into spacecraft. One of the big flaws of the space shuttle, it didn't have an escape system. So the first space shuttle that flew into space had ejector seats, but after that there was no provision to get the crew out if something went wrong, whereas the Soyuz has that. So if something goes wrong on the launch pad, the rocket blows up, the escape system will eject, and it's proved that works. The same with the previous American missions as well. But you look at the return to Earth, well there's so much that could go wrong. The, the parachute getting tangled a faulty component or there could have been damage so with the uh, space shuttle columbia there was damage uh, during launch to the spacecraft which meant it burnt up on the way down but both are really dangerous okay you mentioned kind of the worst case scenario mm. people dying but how about just getting injured well, it's interesting with the Soyuz because um, I, I've interviewed a few astronauts about this. They, it's been variously described as going over um, Niagara Falls in a barrel uh, or going, or going over Niagara Falls in a barrel on fire followed by a car crash because it is pretty pretty awful. And there have almost certainly been some broken limbs and, and damage done in, in the Soyuz uh, coming back to Earth. But uh, almost everyone has walked away from a spacecraft. I was in um, Perth in Western Australia week before last with Steve Robinson who's been an astronaut on a number of shuttle missions and done a number of spacewalks and he showed me a picture of what your ambulance is like if you need an emergency trip home and told me what the g-forces are like and uh, to say that a roller coaster ride is exhilarating would be you know really quite an understatement because you know thinking you've got someone who's unwell injured in some way and then gets this like 6g 7g ride back home to earth and then crash lands down with a bump it sounds horrendous yeah 230 meters per second is the the speed yeah because i mean on the space station if you just look at the medicine on the space station um you've basically got about the same degree of, of medical help on the space station as you would um decide a public swimming pool that sort of degree of first aid. No, if you get really sick up there, you get bundled into a Soyuz and sent back to Earth. Thank you, Richard. Jess, um, Mike would like you to answer this one for him. What actually makes a waterproof coat waterproof? I think this is a really nice question because it's another one of the kind of accidental discovery ones. It's made out of a polymer. So a polymer is a long chain of atoms all connected together, or long chain of carbon atoms. And it's actually, again, similar to the stuff that I research, but I research conjugated polymers. So there you have single double, single double bonds between these carbons. And this is a polymer called PTFE, which is polytetrafluoroethylene. I had to look at that to make sure I said it all right. I am not a chemist, but I hang out with a lot of them. And um, a guy called Robert Gore, as in Gore-Tex, was playing around with PTFE, trying to pull apart rods of it to create a really, really long thread of it. And what they were trying to do was pull apart these rods at really, really high temperatures really slowly to kind of eke it out into this really, really long string to make things that would be really, really sturdy, resistant fibres and stuff like that. And what he realised after a long time of playing with this was that if he pulled it apart incredibly quickly rather than doing it slowly at all, he got this really poor structure. So he generated this structure that had loads and loads of tiny, tiny little holes inside it. And that only happened if he did it really, really quickly. So it increased it by about 800 times its own size and created something that was about 70% air. 
And this structure is actually really neat for making clothes out of because it doesn't let water get through. So water drops that you get on the surface, like if you're outside in the rain on a mountain, don't get through, but you can let sweat out. So that's the kind of difference between a waterproof jacket, a jacket that you can wear out and wear it and sweat in, or something that's just water resistant, like something like PVC that you get really sweaty and you can't wear it for very long. And it's because of this porous structure, which I think is really neat. And it was a complete accident that he did that at all. And the reason that the raindrops won't come through, but the sweat does, is the sweat's water vapour. So that's individual groups of of molecules of water which can get through these tiny holes. But by the time they've formed a big droplet, that clings to itself very hard and won't break up into small enough particles to get back through the hole. Exactly right. It's like a sieve, right? So when we have a sieve, the holes are exactly the right size to let this tiny little water vapour through, but not, not they're too small to let this massive water drop through. John is with us on the phone. Hello, John. Hello. You've got a question for Richard. Fire away. Yes. Yep. Um, I'd like to know how you overcome the temperature on the surface of the moon um, uh, in terms of being on there um, because of the plus temperature when you're in the light and the minus temperature when you're in the dark. And also, how do you overcome the space debris that's coming in on, uh, constantly on the surface of the moon? So range of questions there, there, Richard. So uh, high temperature in the sun, low temperature in the shade and possible impactors. Yeah, even worse than that is all the cosmic radiation and everything else you're being bombarded with on the moon. So the astronauts that have already walked on the moon, so during the Apollo missions, they had, I mean, very sophisticated multi-layer spacesuits, and we would have them again. And you would need to have visors. You see those pictures where it almost entirely reflects, and you see it outside the space station as well, this almost mirrored uh, visor over the over the top. But you're not going to be outside for a huge amount of time, maybe a few hours at, at one time. It is a big issue if we're going to have a moon base. So what they're looking at is 3D printing a moon base from the lunar surface, so from the rocky, dusty surface itself. And I've seen the prototype for this in um, Cologne in the uh, German Space Agency, and it is... Haven't Lego got something to say about this? It's really, it's really, it's just, it's a printer that goes, and it's printing these blocks, and it's not not unlike, not unlike Lego. They have a lot of 3D printers. You have this idea of, you have these inter locking blocks you can make out of the lunar regolith and you can build your shelter and that's where you need to be most of the time you cannot hang around outside on the moon for a long time thanks richard this is the naked scientist with me chris smith now let's consider an event that's hit the headlines big time this year the recent cyber attacks across 150 countries have affected hundreds of thousands of computers and in the uk the national health service has been among the organizations that has been impacted well with us is cybersecurity expert paul harris he's the managing director of uh, the manchester-based firm sakama first of all what is this threat that's brought computers to their knees across the world well, the attack that happened on uh, Friday the 12th of May was a, a ransomware attack. It was called WannaCry. Multiple strains of ransomware attacks uh, are out there currently, and this was just one particular type that attacked certain versions of Windows software. How did people's computers get infected? So it was most likely triggered by a phishing email where people are encouraged to either click on a link or open an attachment which then downloads malware. In the instance of WannaCry, the payload as it's called, this ransomware software, then started to encrypt all of the files on the computer that it attacked. And that means they're effectively locked and you can't unlock them unless you get a decryption key. What this then went on to do, this particular attack, was then search for other devices and computers on the network and start to attack those. So it 
spread very quickly. And then once it had attacked all of those computers, it would then start pinging externally and look for other computers to attack. And do we know where this threat came from? No. I think when it started, like most ransomware attacks, the assumption was that it was an individual cyber criminal. Probably unlikely we'll ever find out for certain. There are some interesting theories, though, around uh, whether this is actually a government attack. So if you think about countries in the world that are sort of posturing at the moment and putting on big displays of their military capabilities, the malware behind WannaCry was actually based on some malware that was out in the world earlier in the year in around January that was created by a hacking team uh, in North Korea called the Lazarus Group. Now, given that the people who are doing this are asking for a ransom, can we not just see where the money goes and then we go and catch them? Unfortunately not, no, because the uh, cyber criminal's currency of choice is something called Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency. So what you can see is their wallet. So on the attack from Friday, there was about £60,000 put into this wallet. You don't know who has put money in and you can't see who takes money out. The reason that criminals like Bitcoin is because there is no central bank. So it's very, very difficult to trace who has them. Once you've got that money, like most criminals, what they do is then uh, launder that through um, you know, one or two sources to turn it into cash. And once your computer has been locked, is there no way back without paying the ransom? The advice is don't pay. It does pose a quite a difficult question for you. If you're smart, you'll have kept backups, uh, you know, regular backups, and you'll have a system in place to ensure that you're able to reinstate. It's a bigger problem for businesses, but if a business is regularly taking backups and those backups are separated from the network, then you're much, much safer. Um, if you haven't got that, then, you know, you are faced with a, a difficult choice, which is, do I pay? It's a relatively small amount of money. But at the end of the day, you're dealing with criminals and there's nothing to say that, that someone won't come back next week and attack you if you've demonstrated that you're able to pay. Andrew. So my real concern is that I have to use lots of very old Windows computers for my work because they're attached to a piece of hardware which is worth a quarter of a million pounds, maybe more. We don't have the budget to replace the hardware, even if the computer's cheap to replace, and no one's going to write a driver for that hardware. So what, what can they actually do? What Microsoft have done following this recent attack is they've gone back to uh, software that had been um, obsoleted by them so they were no longer supporting it and they have gone back and, and created security patches to try and close these vulnerabilities down but it's the way that software companies work they will only support a piece of software for so long and then they move on to their new product you can protect yourself uh, to a degree by all of the basics that, that we should be doing with you know, running patches on our software particularly critical security patches running antivirus software having firewalls having strong passwords not using the same password for everything that we do which is you know it's something that we all do because it's so much easier but really don't <laughs> and uh, have really good discipline about emails okay are these attackers able to get your data or information off of your computer or are they, is it just a lockdown Yes, everybody needs to step away from the idea that you can be safe online because that's a dangerous concept. You know, we don't expect our houses, for example, to be completely impenetrable. We accept there's a certain element of risk there, and it's the same online. So cyber criminals, um, whoever they are, they are after multiple things. They're after your data. They're after um, credit card information. They want to try and get into your bank account. They're, they're looking to steal company secrets, military secrets. You know, we've all got things digitally that are valuable to us, and 
around. Um, it is impossible to entirely protect them. It comes down to how valuable is it to you and how much time and effort and, and budget are you prepared to spend protecting it. And you can make yourself safe from most of these types of attacks, but you'll never be 100% secure. Is it fair enough to say as well, Paul, that sometimes some of these threats, the worst ones, are the ones you don't know about because you could well have things lurking on your computer where the hacker has created for themselves access to your computer and all of your data that Kate's worried about and you don't know that and they can, when they want to, access your computer or call up your computer and use it to do their bidding from afar. Uh, that's very true and that's the majority of cyber attacks are stealthy. They don't want you to know they're there. A ransomware is, is a very noisy attack because... You you have to be alerted because they want you to pay, but by far the majority of attacks are stealthy. So yet you don't necessarily know, and they're not necessarily always after you. They might just be taking over your machines to help them attack other people. And just to finish, Paul, what proportion do you think of people's computers probably do have malware on them? If you took an average person off the street, and I appreciate this is a hard question for you to answer, but you know, plucking a number from the air with all of the risk attached there to what proportion do you think? I think um, if you think that uh, last year 3.1 billion records were leaked, I think it's probably fair fair to assume that most of us have got our data on the dark web. It's been stolen at some point um, from either from us directly or from websites that we use, which is why it's really important to change that the information that you have. And if you think in business terms, I've seen stats between 50 and sort of 75 percent of businesses in the UK reporting cyber attacks last year. So it's one in two or, or worse, uh, your probability of being attacked. That's very, very sobering, isn't it? Thank you very much. <laughs> Paul Harris, who is the managing director of Manchester-based online security company, Sakama. This is a question for you, Andrew, which uh, is coming from John. How long are we actually supposed to live for uh, as a species? Well, thank you for that really cheery question. Um, actually, I, this is actually really interesting, though. So you can sort of take the very simple idea that <clears throat> your only job as a living creature is to have babies, and then they go on and have more babies. And if you take that approach, 30 is probably reaching a ripe old age, because by that time you've had several babies. The mortality rate for having children is quite high, certainly for women over men, and uh, your job's done. That isn't actually what seems to have happened in humans. At some point, we suddenly realised it was actually quite useful to keep old people around to look after the kids when the fit people went off hunting. And so we've ended up where you find a point somewhere around Neanderthal to Homo sapiens where the life expectancy starts going up. And of course, we don't know whether the life expectancy goes up because of social change or a physiological change, but we do know it suddenly became very advantageous to keep the old people around to look after your children. Jess? Is there something about the number of heartbeats that you have as a mammal? Do, do hummingbirds with crazy numbers of heartbeats a minute have something like a much shorter life? You're always, I, the only thing I'm going to be careful about is hummingbirds aren't obviously a mammal. Oh, yeah. But Physicist. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you look at mammals like a hamster versus an elephant, you're absolutely right. And we are massively off that. It's like a line between length of life versus heartbeat rate. And humans are off it. They're completely away from the, the line the point that jess on. is alluding to is if you have a higher metabolic rate because you are small because a hamster or a mouse has to burn a lot of energy to stay warm because it's losing yep. huge amounts of heat through this enormous body air relative to a tiny core whereas we're a bit bigger so we don't have that constraint but yet if you look at how long we live it's out of step with how yep. long we should live and so people are you're saying suggesting there must be some sociological reason to keep people 
in the population. Could it not just be, though, that the, the world we grew up in was just so awful, you know, when we evolved <laughs> as, as a species, that we had to breed ourselves to be genetically super fit in order to compete with that environment? And it just means that that gives us this added longevity. So where it gets complicated is the fact that you can't pass genes on after you have children. But in a way you can, because if your elder generation is helping, by proxy, your offspring are going to survive long, even though they're a generation delayed. And that's where it kind of gets interesting. It's because most animals don't do that. You don't see a multi-generation survival. And it also means that offspring of a different line survive. And that's when we get these really social effects, really hench-benefiting a species which you wouldn't otherwise expect to see. And we don't see this, or do we see this, in other animals? If we look at whales, because they're very long-lived, and elephants as well, is there a similar sort of grandmother effect there? We don't see this deviation from the heartbeats in anything other than humans, as far as I'm aware. Even though there are these long-lived animals that yeah. live in a big group? I, there's no evidence for it. Fascinating. Andrew, thanks very much. Now, Jess, can you help her out uh, with Lois and her husband? Because they have got um, an argument going on. They're saying, um, my standard way of opening a metal jar lid on a glass jar for the first time is to run hot water over the lid. I think the jar opens more easily because the lid expands with the heat, but my husband says it's the air inside the jar expanding and that's what's pushing the lid off. Who's right? So I think that you're entirely right that the lid expands in the heat. The metal lid will expand much quicker than the glass jar that you've got. So that will expand and open up and then you can loosen it up. It also has a lower specific heat capacity. So when it gets to a certain temperature, that expansion happens quicker than the um, the glass that it's surrounded by. Okay, so as you increase the temperature of the gas, the gas will expand. It's incredibly unlikely to break that seal. But that's actually why on the top of kind of pasta sauce, when you buy it, it's it's popped up. And that's because they seal it when it's really, really hot. So pop, when it, popped down. Sorry, it's popped down. Yeah. And so they seal it when it's really, really hot. And then when it cools down, when it's on the aisle or whatever, that gas starts to sink down and get smaller again. So the lid pops down and then you know that you've opened it when it pops up because it's got... Because it does say so if you cannot depress this lid, you know, it's, right. you know it's fresh. I don't buy an awful lot of pasta sauce. Because you, you would think if, if the jar air was made hotter, it would then force the lid up and that would actually make it harder to untwist the lid, wouldn't it? If the gas is pushing on the lid and, and making more friction between the lid uh, yeah, and Yeah, I guess it would make it harder and harder to untwist. But what we're, what we're having the question, I think, is that the gas would expand so much it would just cause it to pop off without un any untwisting at all. You had an interesting theory, right, about using a, a fork and whacking it. Public service announcement. If you take a large knife and you invert it so it's the, the blunt edge of the knife and then you just give a swift whack to the edge of a metal <laughs> lid, it works almost every time. It's perfect. That is the Kate Feller no guide must, no fuss. for how you actually manage to get your lid off your jar. Well, that's it. Thank you very much, everyone. We have run out of time. A huge thank you to our wonderful panel this week. That was Jess Wade, Andrew Holding, Richard Hollingham and Kate Feller. And thank you also to Paul Harris. Katie Haler put the programme together and do join us next week for a very special show when we launch a new strand on the Naked Scientists. That's Naked Paleontology. Georgia Mills will be going back to the dawn of life to ask how it got started. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.